0: What's up? And welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. Today I have Jason Harris here. Jason is the co-founder and CEO of Mechanism and agency. I've got friends there, but it's an agency that's been doing very, very good work. He's written a book, a national bestseller called The Soulful Art of Persuasion. A ton of awards, a ton of things. Twenty Twenty One CEO of the Year by the Drum, a recipient of the Four A's Hundred People Who Make Advertising Great. Jason, do you spend a little bit of time in private by yourself just reading these accolades and uh, letting them all wash over you?
1: It's my mantra. I just repeat it over and over, you know, it helps me relax.
0: So what kind of week have you
1: had, Jason? Well, I landed Friday in Austin, Texas for South by Southwest. One of our clients was Silicon Valley Bank, which I'm pretty sure everyone in the world has heard of now. And we did the... Great job on that, Jason.
0: Great job. You should win all the effectiveness awards. (laughs) <laughs> that was your strategy.
1: What if there's a story that where the phoenix rises? That would be the case study. You would not be hard to f- pull news clips for that case study. So that was one of our clients, and they, you know, what happened to that. We did, obviously didn't do the PR or the comms or any of that work. We did and what the CEO said publicly, et cetera. But we did all the campaigns and marketing for them, and they were a great client, and we had no idea there was any trouble in paradise. And, you know, there's all this press that hits. And I'm going to an interactive tech conference where half of all the startups in tech had their money at Silicon Valley Bank. So the whole conference was all about, I can't make payroll. What am I going to do? It was like a little doom and gloom. And I was just like, well, we were ramping up to do a lot of work for them. And that client was gone. That was a scary bit. But then all of my personal money is held at First Republic Bank. Basically, I landed in Austin, Texas lost a client. All the articles were First Republic's the next one to go. I called my financial advisor. He's at a bachelor party in Puerto Rico. I I can't get a hold of him. And I'm like literally just drinking whiskey, super depressed and, you know, drowning my sorrows. That was my weekend, basically.
0: Let's just stay in that emotional puddle for a second, you know, because Research suggests that as people become more powerful and CEO, co-founder of a long-standing agency with a lot of awards is that research suggests that the more powerful you become, or the older you become potentially, the less empathetic that you become. Also, to survive in business, you kind of have to let the cycles happen to you, let things bounce off you as well. Talk us through your emotional state and in a way that you would not tell people in your company. What was going on?
1: It wasn't one of those cases where... 20% of your businesses with one client, and I'm going to have to do layoffs, which I've been in that situation before. This wasn't that situation. I felt bad for our clients, of course, but this one was different because it was so out of the blue, unexpected. It just happened so fast. You know, we wrote out 2008, we've gone through recessions and pivoted the company and gone through a lot of turmoil in the past where you know, you're like, is this thing going to make it through this? You know, the pandemic was one where when that thing started, you immediately were like, how are we going to keep this thing going? All your clients start pulling back immediately. So this one was different because it was such an out of the blue, didn't see it coming experience, but it also wasn't at the catastrophic level. It was fast, but it wasn't maybe as deep and big as like some of those slower things. So that's how I felt. But It's the first time where I really felt it was personal. And when I started thinking about having over 250K in cash, not FDIC insured, I was immediately like, I took it very personal. You know, I didn't have to worry about 250 people. You know, I didn't have to worry about other people. I was more like an internal thing of like, holy shit, man, what the fuck am I going to do? I was like, how do I wire money to other banks? Like, I just didn't know how to react. I was like paralyzed, basically.
0: Yeah. I think you used the word depressed or depression earlier. Is that like just being dramatic or I'm just curious, are you a stable personality or do you experience the darkness sometimes?
1: Yeah, I'm pretty stable, I would say in general. And I think you kind of mentioned it when you've been around the block, run a business for a while, you're a little more elastic. You know, you don't go through like the holy shit. You're like, yeah, this is going to be bad, but we've been through this before and we'll get through it. Or when you win an account, you're not like fucking run into the bar with the whole company and celebrating because you got that big win. The highs and lows sort of peter off and you're much more in the middle and you know, it's going to be rough patches and wins and losses and you're even keel. And this one, I would say the depression was, it was the first time it was not thinking about other people, but just thinking about me and my money. You know, I was very selfish, I guess, now that I say it out loud, but I was like, wow, what if that money's just gone? That's terrible. I don't know what I'm going to do and then then you go through all these things in your head like, well, it's just money and you'll make more somewhere else or, you know, you go through all these, you kind of convince yourself in your head that ah, it doesn't really matter, you know. It'll be fine. But yeah, it was a lot of push and pull internally for me on that.
0: I relate to the just working through the cycles. When you run business, you're worried less about like, oh my God, are they going to fire me? I think someone said something mean about me behind my back. I can't believe we're working with this client. It's so bad. Like When things are bad, you're like, okay, well, what are we going to do about it? Because you can't not do something, you can't sit on your hands. And so I find myself being more pragmatic and less emotional in my work because all you can do is keep going. And to keep going, you've got to do stuff, especially in this country, which is very action-oriented. Were you ever an employee?
1: Yes, I was. I worked at a couple agencies beforehand.
0: How would you describe the major shifts for you as far as your experience of being an employee versus your experience being a CEO?
1: I kind of was very entrepreneurial and I, I kind of knew... That I was going to work at agencies and kind of learn the craft and figure out what cultures I liked and what cultures I didn't. It was all sort of education for me. You know, It was like, one day I'm going to do something and start something. So this is my learning to do that. That was my sort of MBA learning was working. I literally had a journal. I'm a nerd, man. I always wanted to go into advertising since I was a kid, like 13. I would watch ads on TV and be like, man, someone does that for a living. That's cool. I would write down like, you know, this is a great speech, that person's so inspirational or man, this manager sucks and I would never want to work with someone who's like a fear based leader. And so I was kind of picking things up and literally writing them down. I never read them, I just wrote them down, you know, (laughs) but it was all in learning of what kind of business I wanted to have and run and how I wanted to do it.
0: You're being a philosopher from an early age. It's super interesting for two reasons. One is the number of times that I've met somebody in this industry, I've met thousands, thousands of people, maybe not tens of thousands, but thousands. Number of times where I've heard someone say I've wanted to be in advertising from when I was very young is really rare, less than 1%. And I don't know if people are just a little bit embarrassed about that from a young age because the advertising industry is not as fancy as perhaps it was in the, you know, at least 1980s and before, or maybe some of the people who have that idea, their parents were in the business, which means if they say they had that idea when they were young, they have to acknowledge that their parent owned an agency or something a little bit weird like that. But it also connects to this book called Creators or the Creators, which looks at the lives of some of the most prolific creative people in the world. And a lot of them were kind of semi-professional at the age of 12, 13, 14, like Balenciaga, for example, or someone like that. I don't know if Walt Disney was super active as a teenager, but they look at the lives of all these people and they were actively engaging in what became their career from a really, really young age.
1: Typically, you see people get into advertising because like something else didn't work out, you know, or like they wanted to be a screenwriter and they ended up being a copywriter or they wanted to be in the entertainment business and wind up in the advertising business or journalism or whatever you tend to see it's almost the um <laughs> statue of liberty of the creative field it's like give us your tired your poor your your huddled masses we'll take them and we'll put them to work selling things and that's i think the advertising gig and i think a lot of people in advertising either got there by happenstance and have aspirations to do something else. But then once they get in, like it's kind of fun. The money's pretty good. The hours can blow. You're working in a typically a really fun, vibrant culture. And I think then people just kind of make a career out of it. But I don't think a lot of people are, you know, dying to sell deodorant and sneakers and toilet paper from the get go. I
0: think that's true. I think that's true.
1: How'd you get into it?
0: When I was seventeen I was studying law and commerce. Australia is a little bit different, but I worked my butt off despite some strange stuff that I was around and got good grades and because I got good grades I thought I had to study law because I got the grades to study law but on the side I'm making websites about rap and putting on events like in nightclubs and things like that and I was like this is what I want to do.
1: You're like a Rick the Rick Rubin of advertising. <laughs>
0: I've known that name for a very long time. It wasn't until the past couple of years that I really spent some time in his interviews or watching his interviews. And I was like, Oh yes. As I get older, I'm like, I get what that person is trying to do, how he spends time with people and breaks them down and tries to put them together. I wish, I wish, but it was sort of through all of that, you know, writing for music, press, et cetera. Let's talk about mechanism. How long has it been around?
1: Uh, about
0: 16 years. Just for the sake of focusing, if you had to break those 16 years down into three phases of evolution? Just three. What are the biggest three phases of your agency?
1: We started really as a production company. When we started, it was a really novel idea that you could shoot content and build a website, you know, do that. With one company. With one company. That was like, what? You're either on one side or the other. So that was kind of our genesis that was like a super differentiator when we started. So we were this like hybrid production company and we were really tiny and small and that was the first phase. The second act, it was the birth of like the viral marketing craze and viral videos and we sort of hit on a couple that did really well. Which ones? We did a big campaign with Dimitri Martin for Microsoft Vista. We did a really big one for The Rise of the Planet of the Apes with Fox Studios. It was called Ape with AK-47 and so we got a couple and it was when there you know the amount of content it was easy to like rise to the surface because there wasn't that much content out there there was a lot but there wasn't what there is today and brands weren't really doing it and so we started getting a lot of asks for viral marketing so we kind of pivoted in from production into creating the ideas to create viral content and then we were about 50 or so people and i had to make payroll and Doing random projects that you could maybe sell through or maybe not sell through wasn't cutting it. I'm a big proponent in putting a flag in the ground and then building your business to what you say you are versus building your business and then coming out and saying, This is what we are. I've always kind of believed in that philosophy because it forces you to do the thing you're trying to sell even if you haven't done it before or don't have all the people to do it. And so I remember one day it was Cinco de Mayo in 2010. We swapped out our website from, we were still a production company that made viral hits into a full service ad agency. And we just switched the website and put up a shingle and there you go. That's what we called ourselves. And so I didn't have any brand people. I didn't have any strategy people, We had creative people and production people, and we had to kind of build those skill sets over time and start to function like an ad agency. And that's when we did it.
0: So those first two phases are really, what, 2007 to 2010, and then that third phase has been the past 13 years. Can I count?
1: You're right, yeah. It ran pretty quick. So really three years as a production company, maybe four years. Then we switched, I guess, well, 13 years ago.
0: So, granted that we talked about when you're a CEO, you kind of know that cycles are going to happen, good things, bad things, and you shave the edges off that experience a little bit. So, the highs aren't too high, the lows aren't too lows. I'd love to hear about three of your long, dark nights. And for those of you into screenwriting and storytelling structure, that's usually at the back end of act two, where the person's often in a bar drinking, trying to work out how to get back at the villain who's. Taking their family away again. Tell me about some of your Long Dark Nights and will you go there with me?
1: Yeah, I'll go there. Long Dark Nights. So I mentioned, I don't know the years as well as I should, but I mentioned that Microsoft project that we worked on. We were working with McCann Erickson at the time, who was a longtime Microsoft agency. And we were sort of this like, viral.
0: Annoying. You were this annoying company that kept getting work from them. Yes. Yeah,
1: we were like this (laughs) annoying sidekick, but they also wanted to partner with us because they were doing this big launch. And the project kept getting delayed and delayed. And we were basically out of money. And they kept saying, it's approved. It's approved. It's coming. It's coming. And I remember my partners and our families would do a trip every year in bolinas california like we do a weekend and rent a house and drink wine and hang out and all this stuff and this was going to be a real dark one because i think we were going out of business and so they all left and went to bolinas and i sat in the office it was a friday this is when you would fax over signed estimates (laughs) Can you imagine faxing yeah it must have been like 2008 or something like that tough year yeah, maybe 2007. It was before the whole meltdown. And I just sat in the office and the account person that we were billing through at McCann was like, yes, we got approval. I'm going to send over the signed estimate. This was in the morning and it never came. And we, I think we were down to like a couple thousand dollars in the bank. And I was like, oh, okay, this, it's over. And they all left because they're like, well, we're going to go party anyway. We're either out of business or we're going to keep going because this was a big project for us. It was like almost like a million bucks or something. And we probably had like maybe 10 employees and it came at like five thirty-five on a Friday when that account executive decided to get around to faxing it. And I was sitting by the fax machine and it came through like, <laughs> and I got that thing and my partners were calling me and I wasn't picking up and they wanted to know what's happening. And I drove to this uh, house we rented in Bolinas and, I just walked in and they looked at my face and I threw the signed estimate on the table and everyone went busted out and went crazy. That was a good story, but it was painful. Like that whole two months of like burning it out and not getting paid and trying to put all your attention on this one project because if we get this, we're good for a little while. Those were like, I didn't sleep for probably a month or two. And then a
0: fax machine. I mean, so much could go wrong. Like it could run out of paper. (laughs) It could run out of ink and like what if you get it signed and it's sent and then you take it to this house and then someone puts it in the trash can accidentally? I mean
1: I can't believe we used to operate that way. So that was a dark story. Give me another one. Give me another one. Another one was we helped build Peloton for like seven years. And when we first started working with Peloton, I think our revenue was higher than theirs. It looked amazing. They had like a studio. People were going to the studio. We had a competitive pitch for a project at that point, And where we still are is like, we really want to do AORs because there's security, you know, it's coming. Projects can burn you out and be just as much work. And you know how that works. And it was for a project. And I was like, yeah, I really think we should go for this project for Peloton. I think Peloton's going to be fucking massive. What if we get in there and we start to be their agency partner? So we ended up doing the project, And we won the business and we really helped propel Peloton, which was like on a, you know, rocket ship ride. And we did, I don't know, 50, we did so much volume of work for them. And then we did this one spot that got them really famous and a lot of notoriety, which was this, it was a Christmas spot with a man buying a Peloton for his wife, right? So you're familiar with that spot, right?
0: We're all familiar with uh, your greatest hits, such as Silicon Valley Bank and this particular ad.
1: I love this. We should be listening to The Cure and The Smiths during this podcast.
0: But also, as you wind your way to another long, dark night, lots of accolades, best places to work at a ages agency A-list. Like, come on.
1: No, we had a couple misses. But I remember seeing the spot, like a rough cut of it. I was like, well, we're not really putting that out there, right? This spot is like terrible. It's like horrible, and look at this woman's eyebrows. Like uh, this can't go out. And you know the team was like, we lost on casting. This is the way it went, and we're finishing the spot. And they're super happy. And we put the spot out, and it was a slow news cycle, like two weeks. And that spot, like once someone on Twitter is like talking about the power dynamics with the husband and the wife, and it just blew up and went everywhere, and every news channel covered it, and it went crazy. We had talks with the client about we should you know stop running the spot, like it's damaging the brand. They also were great. they supported us, they were like, yeah, we made this spot together, and you know they weren't like our agency, they didn't come out and say anything about us, but they ended up selling so many bikes from that spot. I was gonna
0: say, yeah,
1: double down. They ended up getting famous from that spot like world famous from that spot that they doubled their media spend against it and kept running it with such frequency that you couldn't miss the spot. And so they would run it on like NFL football games where they were supposed to run it once. They'd run it like four or five times. And so if you hated that spot, you saw it so much, you hated it even more. And you'd have to say something, a comment, and the news would pick up on it. And so it, it didn't go away. It got amplified. And I remember just being like, "This is going to kill the company. like forever we're going to be tied to the spot, and it's just a spot. like people make bad spots all the time, and they,
0: they do they do. and there's so much research out there about how people don't remember anything anyway.
1: but this they remember, I still bring up Peloton in like a client pitch, and they'll be like, "Did you do that one spot? It still comes up like two and a half, three years later, or whatever. It still comes up.
0: I got researchy things to say about this too, but also when we make decisions about things to buy, including buying an agency to work with, we look for the negative because if everything's perfect, we don't believe it. The problem with your long dark nights, I would have loved to have been in the brainstorm where you stood up and said to the Silicon Valley bank people, you know what, we should crash this bank and make it world famous. Your long dark nights end in some really effective situations here. So give me a third one and feel free to follow on with that pattern or maybe-
1: Do these seem like uh, bright spots to you? Because at the time, and they were like, I was in the fetal position,
0: you know? Ah, smart person. Hey, pull your mind out of those timesheets for a second and take a look at the Sweathead website. We have three membership levels, starter mode, flight mode, and beast mode. They give you access to a variety of strategy masterclasses, conferences, accelerators, and online learning, some of which has been known to make people cry because they like it, they like it, they feel seen. Make the most of your mind this year or any year and visit www.sweathead.com today. Now back to the interview. Doo, 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 doo. Your fetal position tends to end very well. Give us a third one. And thank you for allowing me to push you around a little bit. Give me the story that kept you fetal the longest.
1: Yes. I mean, I have one, but I really can't talk about it. Could you talk about it figuratively?
0: Hypothetically?
1: A client we love working with. We had a major fuck up that we couldn't work with this client ever again. And... I felt so uh, guilty and responsible for it. I was in like a K-hole depression for like a month. Usually, like I guess I'm telling you these stories like, yeah, we end up getting the money and Peloton got famous and all this stuff. There's nothing you could do to solve the problem.
0: That brings us beautifully to talking about your book, The Soulful Art of Persuasion. I'm like, what's he trying to persuade us about? That they always come back. There's always a phoenix. But it's good to hear that that one time you stayed in that K-hole for a month. I wouldn't have wanted to have been you, but you know.
1: I mean, just saying there's a lot of times when you run a company, especially the early days, where you really think you're going under like 12, 15 times. Like That's just natural. And each time you're wondering what your future is going to hold and what you're going to do. I mean, that's just natural. It just happens all the time.
0: Let's talk book, okay? The Soulful Out of Persuasion. So unless someone sits down and they're like, I want to be a quote-unquote thought leader to build my quote-unquote personal brand and they assemble a team to write a book for them, which has happened a lot in this industry. At some point, the person who writes the book needs to feel a sense of urgent desperation about a particular topic, something desperate that's going to keep them working at it, even though their mind's going to be trying to distract them all the time. Why this topic? What did you feel desperate about?
1: It was a nightmare to write. As someone who's written a book, it's a terrible process. This took me three years part-time writing it while still working at the agency. And it was a big distraction to a point where people were like, you got to finish that book because you got to come back here and be more present than you are. It was a massive distraction. But I had this burning to, because advertising marketing is kind of all I know. And it really started from, there was a Gallup poll that, kind of kicked me in the ass that was about the least trustworthy professions in America. And so it was um, the first most dishonest or least trustworthy was U.S. congressman or congressperson. Then it was a car salesman. And then it was advertising practitioner. That just sucks for our industry that people think our industry is just full of charlatans and snake oil salesmen, people that lie for a living. And... I had always operated with a lot of trust, both with my employees and with clients. And I felt like there was a, a method that I used to build the values in our company and the values that I believe in and how we work. We never tried to sell stuff that we didn't think we could do or weren't didn't have the capacity to do. And we always tried to focus on, you know, more than awards, trying to help our clients business. And I know it sounds super cliche and I kind of want to throw up in my mouth when I say that. But that's just true. Like, we really embodied that, and we carry these values in the company, and I feel like we are good persuaders. We're good at persuading. And if advertising is the top of the persuasion pyramid because you're persuading clients to buy your idea, you're persuading then customers to buy the product, that to me is like the hardest part. And all of us all day long are in the business of persuasion, whether we like it or not, you know, whether you're personally persuading someone in your family to do something, or maybe persuading your significant other to move to Hell's Kitchen from the 90s, or you're persuading someone to give you that promotion. That's kind of life. And so I wrote it as a practical entrepreneurial business book with my belief set, and then also kind of a personal, I guess, like inspirational book. So I decided that was the genesis. That was a kick in the ass for me that I need because I know the world thinks what we do is, you know, lying and deceptive. And I don't think that's really what we do.
0: I get it. Like if you've been a student of this industry since you were essentially a teenager and adjacent to that, something of a philosopher, I feel like CEOs need to be philosophers because if you're just about maximizing shareholder value, like no one's going to want to work for you in the future, they might've in the past and you might've gotten away with it, but people, they want to hear that story, right? because so many of us are idealists in this industry, not everybody, but a lot. I want to tell you about a story that happened to me in Hell's Kitchen last week, and then I want to hear the opposite of that, what would have been a soulful way to have approached this, right? So I'm in the gym, I'm going for gain. I'm going for 44-year-old gains, you know, trying to get some gains, trying to get some respect respect at home, not self-respect, but also self-respect. I'm sitting there, I'm doing I'm doing bicep curls. I didn't used to do bicep curls. Jason, when I was doing 5 by 5 strong lifts, you work out, I'm trying to relate. And this guy comes up to me, he's younger, (laughs) and he goes, you look like you like to work out hard. And I appreciated that in the moment, Jason. I appreciated it. And I was like, yeah? And then he pulls out his phone and he goes, would you like to buy a few nights upstate at this luxury hotel? Look, here's the massage tent. Now, that wasn't very soulful.
1: Wow, that is brutal.
0: What would have been a more soulful way to have approached that situation, if at all?
1: First of all, I want to know what you said to him.
0: I said, dude, I'm running a business. i got a family. This is really weird and rude. Like he had the eyes of someone who'd spent too much time in those outbound sales webinars and in between them goes to Tony Robbins seminars as well and has been told by someone who worked with the Wolf of Wall Street that it's just a numbers game. He had the dead eyes of someone who I bet would go to a nightclub and approach 100 women because he was way too down the rabbit hole of alpha male TikTok.
1: I think that's a fucking awesome story, first of all. And I like that you're getting those gains in. It's a completely disconnected from anything. It was, you know, that's transactional selling. Someone told him, well, you go to the gym a lot. If you talk to 100 people at the gym, you'll get 10 sales. And so you were number 85 or 86 on his list. And the way to do that really is you add value. Maybe he could have spotted you. Maybe he could have shown you, some other techniques and build a relationship with you over time. Then he could have pounced on, I know you pretty well, Mark, you got, you know, I know your kids. you probably would love a weekend away with your kids.
0: That's what he said. And your wife. And I was like, what? I'm not even wearing a wedding ring.
1: And you can't get all those gains without a little massage. You know, you need to make sure you're, you know, stretching out the fascia, you know, you gotta, gotta get that going. So basically he, instead of uh, building relationships and making connection he's going for transactional selling, which never works. It works in the short term, you know, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross style, like sometimes, but you can't build a career on that because you'll run out of people.
0: Another guy gave me his business card for his barber in the locker room when, I don't know, as you get older, do you forget which locker you used a little more often than you would like to? Because I do.
1: Man, I forget so many things now. And I read a really good book about it that Really is, as you get 40 plus, your card catalog is so vast that to recall, it's not that you're having dementia or you're slower. Your experience is so much bigger. You have to go through that card catalog. I love that visual to find the information in your head. And it just takes you longer. But man, I feel I'm feeling it.
0: Yeah, yeah, I look look leg days, you know, you text that central nervous system doing some Bulgarian split squats, and I'm just a mess in the locker room, it takes me an hour to find my locker. But also having said that to bring it back on topic, having written a book, though, those cards, I, I find them easier to access, because I've spent so much time thinking beyond the thoughts that I took for granted. I've dug in harder and more, and I've not accepted my first answers. So if someone asks me a question about, you know, what's a blah, blah to do with a strategy framework, my brain's like, there's the card, there's the next card, there's the next card. I actually find myself more rapid in that moment. Do you relate to that at all based on your writing of a book?
1: That's 100% true. I think you can answer tough questions. You can access those big ideas quicker it's the little things that, you know, what was that actor's name? When's his birthday? It's those things that you used to just know they're all
0: gone. I relate to all of it. When you were building mechanism, how did you approach new business? Did you do outbound sales? Was it all about peacocking, getting attention? Was it a recommendation? How did you approach persuasion to build the business?
1: For me, when you start a business, a service-based business, you need to get big logos that you've worked with. For a big logo to hire you, they need to see a big logo. And so I would call like VP of marketing or CMOs or get connected somehow to someone. And I'd ask what their biggest problem was that they were dealing with. And we would go back and come up with ideas to solve that problem and then proactively pitch them the idea and tell them if they liked the idea, it wouldn't cost them anything and we would do it. Basically, we were giving ourselves away for free, which is now what we do in pitches anyway, because the business is so screwed up. But we would basically work for free to get a couple big clients under our belt to then get clients that would actually pay us. I really believe in that philosophy of just doing work when you don't have anything to point to, except like, oh, we worked at these places and these places, like no one cares about that. But when you can say we did this campaign or this campaign, or we did this website or this program then you could get other ones and then you can get the money rolling so for like a year we did everything for free and we made no money and that was the hustle after that we got paid i don't know if that's dumb but it worked Well,
0: no, the smart thing, I don't know if you're even aware of this, and I don't mean that as a patronizing thing. I get nervous that when I talk about research, people would roll their eyes and be like, here he goes again. There's research published in the Harvard Business Review under the title, The End of Solution Sales, and it examines or reports about the top salespeople and their techniques, and it breaks them down into about three categories. One is a salesperson who sells features. They knock on the door and go, buy this motorbike, it's faster. The second one, which was pretty popular for a while, is needs-based selling which usually ends up being, hey, tell me your needs now, buy my faster motorcycle. The third is what you did. It's finding a problem to solve and that changes the conversation with the client. But also from a game theory point of view, if everybody else out there is like, buy my thing, it's faster, and you're out there going, oh, you've got this problem, here's how we can solve it, you'll have better chances of selling in. And also, you'll be able to latch on to a different kind of relationship that's more honest. So that's what's interesting to me about what you said. It was the use of the word problem. Are you familiar with that research?
1: No, but I know needs-based selling very well, but I didn't know that it was categorized into three.
0: Yeah, the third one. This must have been a thing that you graduated to as well, although it sounds like you were doing it from early on. You might have had people coming to you going, we want a viral video, and your response was probably well to solve what problem over time, right? Final question on this. When I talk about stuff like that, I feel a bit idealistic these days because agencies are under pressure, strategists are under pressure, strategists aren't often even frontline and the people listening to this are largely in the strategy world, you're a CEO. If a client resists that conversation hey, we need a viral video, we need 10 videos this month with a hashtag and some evergreen content and blah, 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 blah. And you're like, well, to achieve what or what problem are you trying to solve? How do you get them to open up? How do you get them to be okay with talking about the problems when one, maybe they don't know, maybe they're too junior or two, they're like, we don't have problems, we just have opportunities?
1: Well, I think the way we would do that now or the way a strategist could do that now is Maybe even not ask them their problem, but to identify a problem and show it to them. That's the proactive way to do it now. We still try to do that, which is instead of Uh sitting down with the CMO over a drink and getting them to spill their guts about what their real problems are, because you get a brief, that's not showing the real problem of the business. That's what the marketing team determines assets that they need. But it's not really solving any business problems usually. It's just pumping out more of the same when there might be a fundamental business issue that you... Need to be tracking down to solve. One way to do that, if you can't get in there for political reasons, and maybe you're working with the VP of marketing or a different team, maybe the CMO is not involved, maybe they are, is still to try to get that one on one conversation going. Or it's to get your strategy team and maybe your brand team to dive deeper into the business, you know, reading annual reports, finding out what competitors are doing finding that white space where there's a clear business problem and then proactively going to them with, hey, this is a problem in your business and here's a possible way to solve it. But it almost always has to be done off script. It almost always has to be done proactively. It's very rarely done because they know the problem they're trying to solve because at least in my experience, they might not identify the problem or they've committed the brief to death with everyone's needs, that you're not really getting to the heart of what the actual problem is. So obviously answer the brief and do work for that, but try to carve out time to do this like what we see as another problem or a proactive solution. I think that builds a really good connection. Another way to do it, which strategists are amazing at, is trying to get a workshop together with the key decision makers in the same room which during the pandemic is hard to do, but it's usually like maybe the people officer of the company, maybe the CMO, and maybe like even a CTO or depending on what kind of company it is. But trying to get key decision makers, if you're an agency of record, in a room without a clear agenda of something you're already working on and try to get them to kind of come up with what a real problem is or or a layer down. We don't do that enough. We, and I don't think anyone does that enough because we're you know, trying to fill the hours with what they asked us to do. But I think it's really important work.
0: It's also scary. It's risky. And, and sometimes if the strategist wants to do that, the account team might not want to do that or the client will taser you with their eyes because you've said something honest, And that's always difficult.
1: I got one more thing for you. Sorry. Just because I realize your audience is a lot of strategy people. I've been really on this, this thing, especially for like CSOs, any level. But the... Strategy team has to really build relationships with the marketing team. And sometimes the brand gatekeepers will prevent that from happening. You know, if you have great brand people, they won't prevent that from happening. But you have to be trying to build direct relationships with the marketing people and one-on-one calls to really understand the business in a deeper level. That's something that the business can do a better job of.
0: It could in Australia in account planning and strategy that was my experience like if you had meetings without us there and you talk strategy or without the creative team necessarily and you're talking about the creative it just wouldn't happen again we're talking about like leo Burnett, mccann ddb these kind of tribal ddb these kinds of places like we were front line in the u.s strategists are often back line not everywhere but often back offers and account teams who will want to be the most important person in the room, which is fine. I don't mean that in a crappy way, but that's the vibe, right? They sort of will come to the strategist who might be a little bit nerdy and a little bit quieter. And they're like, could you give me an insight this afternoon? Could you give me an upfront? And you're like, no, you need the relationship. The relationship makes the work happen. So you remove the strategist from the relationship. The work doesn't happen the way that it could because the relationship is the electricity.
1: I think that's exactly right.
0: All right, final, final question. CEO. Vibes right now, what's your mood for this year? If you were to be a few whiskeys in on that long dark night last week and someone you cared about maybe they work for you, maybe they don't they tapped you on the shoulder and they said, Hey, what's your mood for the next 12 months? How'd you answer them?
1: I'm in a stay calm and carry on mentality. I think we're in a very chaotic time period right now, and I think with chaos comes a lot of opportunity. You know, in the businesses that we work on and the way I'm kind of wired is when media is cheaper and people are they're not sure about spending money, that's the time when you try to convince your brands to go all in and deeper because they're going to be gaining share a voice cheaper, they're going to be gaining market share cheaper, it's a great time for brands to be figuring out what they stand for and getting that impression out there into the world. Because when things are great, things are more expensive in the advertising world. And it's harder to stand out. And I think right now is like, just enough pullback that you can really make a name for yourself by doing more deeper things as an advertiser.
0: Makes complete sense research would support you hard in the moment if you're like, oh, I don't know if we've got the cash flow to support it. But from a principle and research point of view, it totally makes sense. Jason, where are you most active online if people want to hunt you down?
1: You know, I'm uh, big on LinkedIn at Jason Harris on at Jason underscore Harris on Twitter and Instagram. And uh, yeah, that's that's where you can find me.
0: Jason, thank you so much for joining me here on Twitter today.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. It was great. Please.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Sweathead. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend. Subscribe to our newsletter. Find us on Instagram or LinkedIn at Sweathead. And if you're interested in finding out about our strategy, memberships, company training, or books, visit Sweathead.com. Whoop, whoop.